thanks for tuning in uh, once again. Today's episode is going to be featuring patient safety. Um, now, for obvious reasons, patient safety is a massive part of what um, Schusmith Serious Injury are all about. Um, we take the, the claims that we represent clients on very seriously, and we also recognize that very often there are common uh, trends in the patients and clients that we represent, and some of those trends are due to patient safety issues. Um, what we've seen recently is that these issues have been brought to the fore um, more often than any time in my um, career, and, and I think Kashmir would agree, and, and, and so would Peter, our guest today. And, and we're finding that um, patient safety issues are on the front of newspapers or at, at, on headlines in, in radio um, interviews. And, and I think that's a lot to do with the work of solicitors and to do with um, patient safety advocates and charities um, such as uh, that which our guest speaker today is affiliated with, Peter Walsh. He's the um, CEO of ASMA. And um, I, I think I'll leave it to Peter to give a bit of a blurb about himself and the work that ASMA do. So thank you and welcome, Peter. Thanks for being involved. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks, Thanks for inviting me. Um, I should perhaps start, for those who are not familiar with my charity, explaining the strange acronym ASMA. <laughs> Uh, which of course all our friends and close associates know us by and have done for years. Uh, our full title is actually Action Against Medical Accidents. So what we try and get across in that title is that uh, we're not in any way against the NHS or health professionals who unintentionally get caught up in patient safety incidents that cause harm to people, but we're against lapses in patient safety and sure. all for um, improving patient safety and as part of that um, justice and fairness for people who have been harmed by those cases that slip through the net of patient safety um, and uh, I really welcome this discussion actually because it, it brings together the concepts that are most dear to my charity which are patient safety and justice because we think they're very closely aligned. Yeah we, we certainly have seen that um as of as of late and if you could kind of give me a bit more a bit of information as to the role that AVMA play particularly with the the patients that they represent how, how does it operate absolutely well of course the lawyers uh, among the audience will <laughs> will know AVMA for the work it does uh, with specialist clinical negligence solicitors and firms that specialize in that area um, but that's only part of what we do uh, and in fact a minority of the public who come to AVMA for support and advice actually go on to make a claim. And what we do is help them make informed decisions about uh, what to do about the incident that's affected them. I think we some, were talking... some of them need the services of a specialist lawyer. And so we can refer them to people who specialise in that field. Um, and that's mainly through our helpline. There's a free helpline that operates for anyone in the UK. Um, uh, where trained volunteers and our staff can advise people uh, about their options, how they get their incidents investigated, uh, what opportunities they have to get involved in other processes and what's involved in them if they want to explore, explore those. For example, complaints or referrals to health professional regulators, raising patient safety issues with the NHS or private healthcare providers. Um, Sometimes people need support at inquests into healthcare related deaths if they're not already represented or can't get representation. And we have a specialist service that supports them. 
So there's the helpline and that, that acts as a triage for more detailed casework or inquest support that our staff tend to provide. Sorry, I was going to interrupt you there. Um, myself and Catherine, we were talking actually in our intro episode about um, the situation we face, and I'm sure Abma faced it as well, where you've got a patient who may never have been through, uh, or a family who may never have been through something like this before, and they just simply don't know what to do. And I know from myself in my career, I've had a number of clients who come through to me and said that they actually spoke to Abma first. It was a really good um, source of information and support. And if it hadn't been for organisations like AVMA, they just wouldn't have known what, where to start in terms of addressing issues that they've had. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that organisations such as yours exist to, to support patients who, who have very, sometimes have very limited information as to where to go next. Um, I think the inquest, the inquest example that you gave is, is particularly um, relevant to that um, issue. And, and Kashmir was talking about that in our, in our intro episode. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to discuss uh, with you today, Peter, is um, just patient safety issues in general and how that's um, developed over the course of time. And um, initially, we, I think Kashmir was going to discuss with you the issues that she's been dealing with quite a lot in, involving rogue surgeons and um, as has been in the press quite a lot um, recently, uh, which is the maternity issues across the board. Um, Cashmere wanted to take the lead on. Yeah, Peter, um, um, there has been so many um, failings in maternity care across the UK. We know that Donna Rockington's doing her review into Telford and Shrewsbury, where there's a police investigation. Um, we know there's been the Cumberledge review, there's been the Bishop's report in relation to Mr. Patterson. Um, I know that both you and I gave um, evidence to that in, in, uh, inquiry. What what do you see as the, the central issue that comes out of these inquiries and what do you think of the recommendations that are made? Um, for example, I know the Cumbridge Review have suggested a patient safety commissioner. What, what are your views on those recommendations? Well, take, taking all of the various inquiries and reviews, um, one thing really stands out going all the way back, you know, in my memory to the Bristol inquiry. Um, and that's that these inquiries and reviews uh, usually come out with really good recommendations and findings. The problem has been implementation of those recommendations. So there are still recommendations from the Bristol inquiry that the government said they supported, which haven't been implemented. And you mentioned maternity. Maternity is probably the most reviewed area. Uh, we supported families and um, campaigned for the uh, inquiry into Morecambe Bay. Uh, and uh, that has probably been the biggest, highest profile um, inquiry into maternity services in recent years. Um, its recommendations haven't all been implemented. And we've now moved on to um, uh, the East Kent uh, inquiry, uh, the, the Ockenden inquiry into Shrewsbury and Telford that you mentioned. Uh, and of course, there's recently been a health select committee review of maternity. Mm. So one of the key things is we've got to get a grip on these recommendations and see action arising for, from them. So why, why do you the, think that is, Peter? Why are those recommendations not being implemented? I think it's the, the sheer volume of issues that um, the NHS has to face 
and the competing priorities that there are from commissioners, from um, finance departments, you know, keeping to budget, um, different uh, government policies that come in, uh, in between and after recommendations are made. And no one actually holds the ring centrally. So what we've recommended is that perhaps the Health Select Committee, or I should say the Health and Social Care Select Committee, um, or some special committee is established in Parliament to actually own those recommendations and hold Parliament to account, if you like, for actually seeing the implementation of those recommendations, where they've been accepted. Of course, sometimes there's good reasons that can be justified for not accepting a recommendation. By and large, they tend to be accepted and then some of them not acted upon. Yeah, I mean, I, like you say, the, the bishop from in his inquiry into Mr. Patterson made a number of recommendations. And I appreciate that COVID and the pandemic has had to take priority, but we really do need those recommendations to be implemented because if they're not, then there, there could be another situation where a private doctor um, you know, carries out acts of, you know, criminal acts on, on vulnerable, innocent people. So in my eyes, it's really important for patient safety for those recommendations to be fully implemented. And in relation to any issue about resources, well, if those recommendations are implemented, there will be a huge saving of resources because the NHS and other institutions will not have to pick up the, the the situation whereby somebody is harmed and therefore requires remedial treatment or a clinical negligence claim that arises from it. So in the long run, it is the most cost efficient thing to do to fully implement all of those recommendations from every inquiry that's taken place. Absolutely, yes. Um, I should mention uh, from the Ockenden inquiry, um, there have been interim recommendations. And one of the uh, reassuring things about that is that the Department of Health and Social Care, rather than waiting for the final set of recommendations, are actually acting on that initial set of recommendations. And one of those we've got great hopes for, uh, it would help plug a gap in the system. And it's for something they've called uh, independent senior advocates to assist women and families who experience problems in maternity services. Um, at the moment, the amount of specialist advice and support that's available to those families is really inconsistent. I mean, we, we do what we can do at ADMA. We, we prioritise those cases, especially those going through HSIB, Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch Investigations, and the Early Notification Scheme, the NHS Resolution Run. Um, but there's not enough provision. Uh, now, money is being made available for those recommendations, and we've got a, a big hope that that will turn into something that will plug that gap of independent advice and support for women and families in maternity cases. That's great. Um, I, th I think something like that would be really valuable. Certainly the feedback that we get from um, patients who are in similar circumstances is they, they, they just, as I've said before, they often don't know what to do. And um, having that advocate um, and that support system in place would just be um, invaluable. Um, I think what both um, what, what maternity issues and Mr. Patterson um, show is actually just how much interest there is in patient safety at the moment. I mean, we've seen um, certain publications actually have health correspondents who are now active more than they ever were. Um, and how have you kind of seen the development of that over the course of your career in terms of 
um, wider interest in patient safety issues. Is it encouraging? How, how do you feel about it? It is encouraging. Uh, it's certainly um, on the map, on the agenda. Yes. There's, yes. there's much increased awareness about the need to improve patient safety. And in fairness, um, you know, we've seen that reflected by um, Jeremy Hunt when he was health secretary. Uh, whatever people may think about some of his policies, yeah. uh, one thing he was very consistent about, and that's really drawing attention to patient safety. Um, so awareness and commitment and goodwill are all good improvements that we've seen over the years. Um, there is a lot of good work being done. There are good organisations who've come into being, such as the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch that I mentioned, to really sure. try and drive up the quality of uh, investigations in the NHS, which, as, as we know, uh, are very, very inconsistent in terms of quality around the country. But I think what, where the problem lies is that um, it's a difficult nut to crack. Um, you know, uh, healthcare is so complex, it's ever evolving. Uh, you've got new treatments, new innovations coming in. Um, and therefore, you know, we need to keep on top of, of it staying a priority because there's a temptation to put it in the too difficult box. Mm. The ministers get embarrassed that, you know, the problem isn't solved and it's not going to be solved any day now. You know, it, it, it's a long journey to actually see the tangible results. The actual reduction in incidents that are occurring, we're not seeing that. You know, the reports yeah. of incidents are still going up. Um, oh, and on that on that point, um, Peter, a, a lot of it is like a culture thing, isn't it, in terms of getting that cultural change. We know that the duty of candor um, applies, but there's still a, a difficulty in getting people to admit when something goes wrong. And um, I, th I think, you probably saw in the news a week or so ago about the chief executive of a, a trust down in Kent that um, um, I, I think he must have resigned from his role, but he'd um, carried out a, a campaign against a whistleblower and just gave out such the wrong signals. And with Patterson, we know that there was a complete failure in clinical governance and the, and the management, both in the private sector and, and the NHS. But how do we make sure that there is a cultural change so that where mistakes are made, that people, clinicians, other um, people working in that environment are confident to speak out about it? Well, that, that really is the holy grail. And I think most patient safety experts agree that leadership and culture uh, are, are at the core of the problem and they're at the core of the solution if we get it right. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about um, something that's being called just culture or patient safety culture, which embraces that just culture approach. Uh, in the old days, people used to talk about something called no blame culture. And I'm glad to say that's, that's been put to rest. You know, people realize that you can't have a no blame culture, that accountability uh, is an important uh, part of the culture, but it needs to be proportionate and fair. Um, the difficulty in those discussions, if you look at them, uh, and you look at the initiatives that have been taken about just culture or patient safety culture, uh, very few of them um, include patients and families in the definition. Uh, it's turned into a discussion about a human resources relationship between employers and staff, which is a very important part of the equation. You know, we need to stop the situation where individual members of staff are scapegoated, are blamed, for what essentially is a failure in patient safety and 
and um, governance and quality within organizations. But in my view, uh, and in our view, you can't talk about culture in healthcare without embracing patients and families. You need to create an environment where patients and families are confident that they're always going to be dealt with honestly, dealt with with respect, uh, and fully involved in dealing with the aftermath of the incidents that affect them. Um, so that's something we're working hard on. And the other, the other aspect of this is that there is, I'm afraid, a, a tension, a danger, that whilst there's more awareness about the need to improve patient safety, um, I think the pandemic and financial pressures faced by the NHS may lead government to think that um, policies such as reducing access to justice for the injured patient are in some way helpful to patient safety, whereas we would argue they're missing the point that, you know, the claims only exist because there have been lapses in patient safety. It's a false economy, isn't it? False economy. If yeah. you solve patient safety problems, you prevent the claims. There will always be some claims. Um, and those claims, when they happen, or complaints, when they happen, instead of being... Um, uh, discouraged and frowned upon uh, and stigmatized should be seen as opportunities for learning. Mm -hmm. And the sad fact is that in a lot of the cases that are contested, um, well, the majority of the uh, cases that are contested uh, actually um, settle in favor of the claimant. Mm -hmm. And without the ability, with the help of specialist lawyers, to actually make that case, patients and families would not get the NHS to realise that there actually was a problem in the first and that's, place. That's actually quite opportune because in the report of the Patterson Inquiry, the first, the introduction, the bishop talks about the failings in the healthcare sector and the failings in the regulatory um, organisations. Um, and he uses the words, it's, it's only when the patients spoke to sympathetic lawyers that they felt that they were listened to. And I think what you say is really important because had it not been for the work that we did then in, in trying to work out why these cleavage sparing mastectomies were being performed, why these unnecessary operations and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing, that we achieved the criminal conviction that he's been struck off, further recall of patients, the inquests into the, the unnatural death. So it, it is really important that we as lawyers can speak out for these mm. patients who've suffered um, at the hands of, I mean, thank God, rarely rogue surgeons, but other, sometimes it can be incompetent surgeons. You talk about the Bristol Pediatric Cardiac um, cases. I did actually start my career as a defendant lawyer. So I used to work at the Osborne Clark Solicitors and we were the solicitors for the, the trust because it was a trust that was dealing with the new BHT. And I remember going to a meeting with Mr. Wishart, um, one of the cardiac surgeons. And even then, when I was so very young and um, on a very steep learning curve, I realized that actually this, this doctor was deluding himself as to his ability in terms of being able to perform these very complex um, cardiac operations. Um, um, and it's a shame that 1995, I think, is when the Bristol cardiac cases were going on, 2021, we've still got situations where doctors don't recognise the limitations of their own 
expertise and competence? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a prime example, I think, of where the law uh, can be and has been an assistance to bringing about learning and realisation, as well as justice for the injured parties. Um, and that should be embraced and seen as part of a just culture. You know, a just culture is one where if someone's been harmed avoidably uh, by lapses of patient in, in, um, in patient safety in, in the NHS, um, that's something everybody should want to see happen is fair compensation as well as learning and accountability arising from that. And there's on, a, on a general perspective, we see it quite a lot. I mean, we uh, sometimes collaborating with ourselves will have um, clients who have initially tried to stay away from litigation and put forward a complaint off their own back. Um, that complaint possibly has, hasn't been dealt with properly or they'll get a very negative response, which they are suspicious of, will get involved. We sometimes will even get to the point of drafting a letter of claim, have a response, and still there's a denial. And there are very often cases where we then issue court proceedings off the back of expert evidence that's in support. And then, it, it, I mean, we hypothesize that it's then gone through to uh, a barrister or someone more senior, and they've realized actually um, there's, there's some merit in this case and then it's only at that point that we get some permission if at all uh, and it can often be quite later and it, it's frustrating on our part because i think sometimes um the impression of um claimant solicitors or, or, or the at this area of law is that um that there seems to be a, a negative view of it um because of the element of compensation and and when i i explain to people actually what it is that we do um a, a lot of the time i have to highlight that admissions aren't just readily made and, and and it goes back to what we were saying before if if they were made earlier and it, it would increase the confidence that patients have in the treatment they're receiving or their loved ones are receiving and it would also limit the, the costs of litigation um, and I think that's one thing that really does the, the, the element of the duty of candor does really need to to change and, and I know you're doing a lot of work on that Peter um, and I think I think it's something from my perspective is something that will definitely feature as part of the patient safety agenda for for quite a while yet um what what are the up and coming issues in patient safety as you see it what what, what where do you think see things going what is ALFA doing at the moment um we continue to work on the duty of candor it's one of, of our best known campaigns where mm. you know we're, we're so grateful that it's there and i think we see the beginnings of uh, cultural change. Things are getting better, but they're a long, long way from being consistently right and properly implemented across the country. So that 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 central issue of fairness and honesty with patients will always be a key priority of ours. Uh, that's why we keep a very close eye on policies like the so-called safe space in safety investigations. Uh, which may rear its head again in the context of the health and social care, health and care bill going through Parliament. Um, hopefully, only in respect to investigations carried out by the HSIB, uh, because there had been a government policy to extend that um, safe space, which is defined as a prohibition on sharing information about investigations, even from the patient or family concerned. Um, that was to be applied to standard local NHS investigations. We managed to uh, persuade the 
parliamentary committee looking at that to uh, to actually strongly recommend in the strongest terms that it shouldn't be followed because it's completely diametrically opposed to the principles of the Treaty of Canada. Um, so we'll, we'll always be um, prioritizing those issues of honesty, uh, appropriate responses. Our, our current campaign brings together some of the themes around um, fairness, honesty, and culture that we've been talking about. We've called it a harmed patient care pathway. So using the concept of clinical pathways that exist for different conditions like diabetes, et cetera, we're trying to get acceptance that people who've been harmed in healthcare should be entitled to expect a defined set of different types of support. So for example, that in, in our thinking, that will include um, uh, full and proper implementation of the duty of candor, um, the access to specialist independent advice or advocacy to help people in that situation, access to counseling or other therapies, because people in this situation, as you will know well for your contact with clients and we know well through our contact with the public, you know, are in a, a place of trauma. And often um, putting aside the physical injury that's been caused, uh, psychological injury, a, a second harm, is caused by the way they're dealt with, by the fact they're not believed, that their integrity is called into question, mm. they're not treated by, with respect, they're not given the full information, not told about their rights. Um, and so this package of support, which would include, you know, not stigmatizing people if they choose to take legal action, which is a perfectly reasonable civil right, um, we want to see adopted by the NHS uh, as a standard that the CQC could monitor, uh, support the um, NHS patient safety uh, incident reporting framework and incident report uh, investigations. Um, and that would go a long way to the recognition of the needs and the plight of injured people in healthcare. That sounds brilliant. Um, and we really look forward to seeing more about that. Um, um, while I think at this point, it would be really good to say that um, Avma have got a fully fledged website, they've got social media, we all follow because it's a really good source of information even for us as lawyers. And um, one of the reasons we're speaking today is because there is an interplay between Avma and um, solicitors such as Shoe Smith um, and in the work that we do. We, as, as I said before, we find it, the, the work that Avma do invaluable to as a source of information and, and especially when we've got situations where we've got a number of patients who've been affected in the same way. Um, we trust a lot of the time you will have been, Abma will have been contacted um, by a number of like patients and it's really good to collaborate and to share information. Um, also, aside from that, Abma provide really good training. Um, one of the most effective sets of training in the year is always the Abma conference, which normally is in person. I think this year it was um, it was online. I'm, I attended. I'm online. so looking forward to an in-person yes. Abma conference <laughs> on, in, on Brighton Beach. <laughs> um, it's always a really good way of collaborating with colleagues, with um, people who do the same work, with experts. Um, with patient safety experts, it's always a really good way of us um, networking and thinking of ideas and, and learning about the medical side of things and having a legal update. Um, and, and I know you have membership um, membership structure in place as well. How do you find that works in terms of having the interplay between ABMA and um, solicitors such as Shoe Smith? 
uh, is really, really important to us. And, and, and thanks for saying, you know, what you value about ADMA. Um, but one of our ADMA strengths is the network of law firms and individual specialists who we work with. Um, and it's really from people like yourselves who are doing the work at the coalface that we, we get to understand and really uh, know about the challenges in your work in access to justice for your clients. Um, but going, going even beyond you know, the clinical negligence um, interface, um, also the intelligence about patient safety issues. Mm. And I'd encourage all uh, solicitors practicing in clinical negligence to think of their clients, uh, obviously, um, not just as a, as a claim, as a person, holistically, uh, but also their experience being about patient safety. Yeah. Um, even in those cases that for whatever reason um, are not going to turn into a claim, there's almost always a patient safety issue in them. And uh, sometimes patterns become apparent to local law firms in a way that they don't to ADMA, quite frankly. So we weren't getting Patterson inquiries in the early days. Um, and, you know, working with firms like Shoesmith to actually understand what's going on and how big the problem is, uh, is very valuable. And that's happened in a number of um, high profile scandals. Cases. Around. I mean, we, we were finding at the time as well as ADMA, we were, um, Kashmir and myself were liaising with the General Medical Council. And even they at an early stage were, they had an, an inkling about what was happening. I think they knew something, but they didn't, they hadn't put the pieces together because as you say, it's the patient stories and experiences that hadn't kind of hadn't made it to the fore with them. Um, and so it is, it, it is often a really important part of our role to ensure that, that we don't just treat each claim in isolation and, and look for those patterns because it very often is the case that we might be able to stop something happening later on. Or with Patterson, actually part of it was in the early stages, we had this group of patients who thought they'd had a full mastectomy, hadn't, thought that they were completely clear of cancer and that there was no chance of it coming back. and actually were exposed with toxic tissue there that had, that had been retained um, and and we know both myself and Kashmir had to actually um, make a make a plea for certain patients to come forward because it's important that they knew whether they were in that category or not so I think the, the work that we do um, is really important to protecting patients and highlighting their stories. I think I think with Patterson we realized early on that we needed volume if we were going to affect changes in terms of getting him struck off, getting a police investigation, we needed people to come forward. Um, and so we did have to put a call out to action. I think, but neither Sharon nor I expected the number of women that then came forward. We had a press conference in uh, November 2012, which um, it felt it worked really well, actually, because the GMC had just suspended him. And on, off the back of that, we had the press conference uh, and within the week we had 400 more clients. Um, so it, 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 and it, and it was in those circumstances really important to raise the awareness of what was going on, on to make sure the full impact of that was known and the full implications in terms of the regulatory, the criminal, um, everything else that flows from that actually took place. But yeah, I, mean, I think it's just a, that as that case as well as many others are a really good example of how um, solicitors can play an important role in working with organisations such as ADMA to um, further patient interests and um, protect 
their um, and, and, and to enhance patient safety. Um, I think that's as much time as we have today. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to speak to us. It's been really interesting to see, um, to listen about what AFMA are doing and um, where we can potentially get involved. And um, also to look at what's happening in the future. It does look like you're, you're doing some really interesting things. Thank you very much. Really good conversation and uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you, so much. Thank, thank you, Peter, for your time. Really appreciate it.